Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. to new books in South Asian studies. We are venturing rather further afield today than is the norm, to Southeast Asia to be exact. The place has variously been described as an extension of India or China or Oceania. There's just a lot of diversity out there. Anyway, situated between India and China and Australia, it might seem kind of a small place. But it's not. Borneo, which is what we are discussing today, is the third largest island in the world and it needs the space. Seeing that there are all of three nation states holding a chunk of it, Indonesia, Malaysia and Brunei. That's a lot of passport stamps if you're a tourist. Lonely Planet notes that to go from Miri in Sarawak to Kotak in Abalu in Sabah necessitates a whopping 10 border crossings. But the fox in the northern bits of Borneo do this all the time. And Professor Noboru Ishikawa is going to tell us about how two village communities handle living on the Indonesian-Malaysian border, where it's easier to go to the next country than to the nearest town in your own country. Over to Noboru. It's a pleasure to have you. Could you please just tell us something about yourself and your career to date? Yes, uh, my name is Noboru Shikawa. I'm an anthropologist born in Japan, trained in various cultural settings. My anthropology is a kind of an amalgam of three traditions, British and American anthropology, as well as Japanese area studies. I received my BA in social anthropology from Tokyo Metropolitan University and a PhD in anthropology from Graduate Center of the City University of New York. CUNY. My anthropology was formulated in the tradition of British anthropology, which I first studied as a BA student in Tokyo, and a political economy-oriented anthropology, which I encountered during my graduate training in the United States. I underwent graduate education in the late 80s in New York City, where a PhD program in, uh, in anthropology at CUNY Graduate Center was thriving under Professor Eric Wolf and a very prominent team of anthropologists. I was very, very fortunate to gain solid theoretical anthropology training as an important sense, an important sense of history, as well as awareness of social issues in the context of New York City. That's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, um, uh, when I started the program, my advisor, Eric Wolf, his book, Europe and the People Without History are now one of the classic books looking at global connections. The book has just been published. An anthropological approach uh, many of CUNY anthropologists pursued was very much concerned with history, political economy, and uh, micro-macro connections. And I saw its practical explanatory power in the field situation where anthropologists do field work. After finishing my dissertation research in Malaysia, on which my book, Between Frontiers, was partially based, I landed a job at the Center for Southeast Asia Studies, Kyoto University, uh, which is one of the most innovative centers for area studies on Southeast Asia, where researchers strive to cross the lines of demarcation that separate the various social and natural science disciplines from one another. I'm very happy to pursue new kind of anthropology or a holistic approach encompassing social and natural sciences here in Kyoto. Um, that sounds very interesting. Uh, could you tell us something about your current book, Between Frontiers? Yes. Uh, this book uh, challenges established scholarly views on nation and the state. Um, in other words, I suggested 
a way to rethink nation state by writing the book. I started by questioning commonly held assumptions or accepted academic notions on nation and the state. Apply them on a social field or locally best situated,、uh, suited to challenge them. Do anthropological fieldwork supplemented by historical archival research and、uh, construct a new paradigm. For, for instance, I revisited Max Weber's very famous notion on the state. And also on the nation, I critically analyzed the notion of、uh, nationalism presented by Benedict Anderson. So,、uh, to me,、um, for example, a state staple of post war academic writing, nationalism is rather contentious abstraction. It has been treated as something imagined, fashioned, and、uh, disseminated. In my book, I tried to restore. The notion to the social field from which the nation was abstracted. For example, I did so by looking at the emergence of national space and how the establishment of national spaces shaped the lives of people living in the borderland. People live between nations, people who live between frontiers. My fieldwork was conducted in Borneo. The borderland between Malaysia and Sarawak and、uh, Indonesia and West Kalimantan. The research, research also included archival research on the area recorded by British officers from the 1870s. The main questions I asked was what happens when the state actualizes its territoriality? How does the state maintain national space? How do people strategically situate? Themselves as members of a local community, nation, and ethnic group within a national territory. By asking these questions in the face of the reality where village boundary coincides with a national border, I examined state society dialectics or state society interaction, in other words, and the birth of nation viewed. From the margins, both as history and process.、Um, that sounds amazing. I mean, Borneo must be a lovely place.、Um, could you tell us something about like, the distinguishing features of your fieldwork and the book itself? You know, the methodology, things like that. Yeah.、Um, my research and book writing arises from a small hyphen, in a sense, a very small hyphen between nation states. You know, there is a hyphen which connects the word nation and the state. You know, the hab- habitual use of the term nation state,、uh, I will not. Gala, the question is different. How, how,、uh, I, I put, how does the current work book fit into your research and how did it evolve out of past work and、uh, thought in social sciences? Is this a okay. question? Okay, yeah.、Um, so we could just go on to that.、Um, Yes. So could you repeat the second、yeah. one? How does the current work fit into、yeah. it? I, I'm talking about some past work、yeah. and、uh, what kind of res- resonance relationship my book has with these you know,、um, the, the past studies. So,、uh, yeah, sure. Can I start going this? And this is rather long. And、uh, actually, I paused, but、uh, I had still a few lines to go on. Yeah, yeah, please go on. Question, yeah. But,、uh, yeah. How, how can I say? Where, where did I stop?、Um, um, that's okay because、uh, any pauses,、uh, we can always edit it out. Yeah, so can I just.、Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely.、Uh, intentionally overlapped.、Uh, one, yeah. And then the, can you start,、uh, the add the, the following? Uh, sentences to the first question or to, the, to my question to your first answer? Yeah, yeah, so I think we could go on to the third question, which is basically about your current book now and how it fits into the research. So, yeah, you could just tell us about that. Yeah,、uh, for, I forgot, where did I stop? Okay.、Uh, for questions for seniority in the. Uh, uh, uh. Um, let's see.、Uh, yeah, question number、uh, two. Okay, the margin, both as history and process. So, can I just、yeah. uh, start? 
Oh yeah, sure. So uh, this is a continue. This is the just for uh, the record. This is a continuation of my answer to the yeah. the previous question. Okay. Sure. So uh, I I I said something like you know by asking these questions in the face of reality where a village boundary coinc- coincides with the national border, and then uh, yeah. I um. Uh, went on to say, I examine state-society dialectics or state-society interaction, in other words, and the birth of the nation viewed from the margin, both uh, both as history and process. I, I, I finished this. And uh, can I start uh, now? The next question, that's question uh, number four. Uh, yeah, sure. A continuation of the previous, uh, yeah. uh, my, my previous answer to your previous yeah. question. Okay. So, um, uh, let's see. Not long, but about one, two, three, four, five, five, five sentences. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. So uh, I, I start. I emphasize that for people living in borderlands, the notion yeah. nations are not an imagined notion in people's head, but everyday reality, very much related to political economy, both at micro and uh, macro level. The state marks territory and controls labor mobility, and as a result, an ethnically segmented national society was established. People chose uh, choose one national affiliation. It is, in fact, not only people, but commodities also need national affiliation. Those are enforced through imagination, I mean, immigration and customs regulations. The social identity is based on the spatial demarcation of administrative villages, ethnic communities, and the national territory. When the international boundary is in field, use the border uh, for their uh, benefit. Key networks, contraband commodity trade, labor movements, shifting cultivation across borders are some of the examples of such uh, maneuvering uh, acts of the people. I didn't write. I did not write this book as a highly specific book or a book of an exotic frontier. Rather, I believe that the examination of state-society relationship in a specific locality is highly relevant to the general process of the making of nation-state theory generated from a thinly populated, primarily jungle. Um, covered ecological niche with an extremely porous border presents a view of state-society relations elsewhere. Uh, particularly, it has close parallels throughout Southeast Asia, where populations have long been non-sedentary, non-territorial, and uh, very much transnational. That was very interesting. Um, could we like go on to the next question now? Uh, it's uh, uh, yeah. So can I talk a little bit about how my book is related to the previous yeah. work? Yeah, definitely. I'm sure we'd all love to hear about that. Okay. Uh, my research and book writing arise from a kind of very small hyphen that connects the words nation and the state. The habitual use of usage of the term nation-state you know, uh, connected with a small hyphen to describe a specific form of state, one that governs the territory of the particular nation, creates an impression that the nation and the state are inevitably inevitably uh, intertwined and connected. But uh, I had a question about this. Uh, it was about questioning the conceptual linkage, which seems to complicate the relationship between the two terms nation and the state. Um, nationalism has been one of the most effective concepts in post-war academic writing for exploring the relationship between nation and the state. It is the, the ideological al- alibi of the na- territorial state, in a sense. It is a principal justification and a vehicle for assigning collective status to populations as members of the nations. Nationalism is a contentious abstraction, but scholars have generally treated the nation as something imagined, fashioned, and disseminated, as I mentioned earlier. If so, the nation exists in the mind, in printed matter, 
or school maps, the notion nation is presented by symbols such as flags and national anthems. In this book, I focus on something much more concrete, the physical presence of uh, presence under people's feet rather than an abstraction in their minds or heads. Rather than discussing the iconology of nationalism, it deals with, my book deals with the social, economic, and uh, political processes involving, involved in the making of na national space. I look at the construction and the evolution of national boundaries and the national space, along with state power and the societal responses to it. In my book, I define national space as a social field within which people are present, represented as a single collective social good. So throughout my study, national study serves as an, uh, an a very important analytical uh, interface where nation and the state are contested and as a point of articulation that links a particular social group with a political association holding um, effective dominion over geographic area. So state territory and the national space are by no means unnecessarily identical and each has a distinct history. So uh, if you take a look at the history of nationalism, often, you know, uh, nation and uh, state are too identical, uh, too separate identities. So uh, often it cannot be connected, you know, automatically. So uh, ever since Max Weber, the very famous sociologist, described the nation-state as a compulsory association claiming a monopoly on the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory, territoriality has been a basic requisite for the nation-state. But I question this uh, in my book. This definition leads to a treatment of, of the organizational development and the spatial formation of the state as a very uh, two separate processes. But recently, New Geography uh, has pointed out that the meta-narratives provided by modern social theorists concentrate on process of temporal change, only history, while keeping spatiality const constant. So in a sense, the, the processes through which the territoriality of the state is recognized and the nation is spatially arranged within a prescribed territory are not are taken as established uh, theoretical facts rather than a proposition to be examined. So uh, I examined from the beginning how the nation is established spatially and how state territoriality arise especially. So uh, this is my basic question I attacked. The studies of international politics have likewise paid scant attention to the social processes of national ter territorialization. For example, the modern nation state is treated as an amalgam of sovereignty, nation, and the territory a concept rooted in the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia. Mm -hmm. The processes involved in the creation of national territory have been conflated with the descriptions of the treaty ratification in the history of the world politics. But I like to see something more dynamic in the process of making nation and state on the ground. So the insertions of spatial um, considerations into uh, consideration of the genesis of nation-state provides the vantage point of, for my study. I consider nation, national space as a social field in which practical policy implementation and the response of society take much, much clearer shape, clearer shape than is the case with abstractions such as, uh, you know, quote, nationness unquote, and a quote, nationhood, unquote. A borderland provides a useful perspective from which to examine the genesis of state territoriality in my study. Also, I dealt with the evolution of a national space and the relation between the two. Residents of the border zones deal, deal on the daily basis with the most concrete manifestation of the nation state. 
its territory, territorial boundary. Every everyday people go and uh, you know go cross the boundary. So uh, this is a reality. So I like to see you know this kind of everyday reality rather than the subject of ideation and imagination. Questions of identity and uh, using the word apadurai, the location work, can have far-reaching consequences. And the everyday decisions about the affiliation of people and the things are deeply associated with the position of the people as villagers, members of ethnic groups, and the national uh, nationals of uh, geobodies on this uh, border. So uh, these things uh, I um, tried to analyze by my field work. Um, that's the you know, very informative, and uh, I actually really like the way that in the book, you know, you trace the transition of the border area from being a Dutch and British border zones to that of a more rigidly demarcated Indonesia-Malaysia border, you know, Sarah, and the syntax, Sarah, yeah. Sarah, still, still, you have to ask a methodology question. Okay. What, what, uh, your question was, what were the distinguished features of your field work and the result on book? Please feel okay. free to be as uh, technical yeah. as you like. Oh, so, yeah. I, okay. So can I go on this? Okay, yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, it's uh, your interview. You can just tell us in the way you think best. Could you ask yeah. your, your yeah. number, what, what, number yeah, four? Yeah, number four, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So could you, could you ask the question? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, um, what are the distinguishing features of your field work and uh, the resultant book? you know, things like methodology, the technique. Okay. Um, as I um, um, told you, uh, my research site is a borderland. Mm -hmm. And I, I conducted a very, very interesting uh, borderland, which has been a social interface between pairs of political systems for a long, long time, from the beginning. Uh, it, it was uh, an interface between the Brunei and the Samba Sultanates, the Islamic uh, Sultanates, and then the white Rajas of Sarawak and the Dutch colonial governments, and the post-war British colonial administration in Sarawak and in uh, Indonesian West Borneo. And this uh, interface has uh, become uh, the borderland now between independent Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. So uh, for a long, long time, this uh, space is a kind of an inter interface between a pair of politics. And at one time, a major mercantile crossroads. The zone has become a very obscure periphery that separates modern national territories. In many ways, the region represents the history and the social formation of island Southeast Asia in microcosm. And this study is particularly concerned with the social, economic, and uh, cultural incorpora incorporation as well as uh, exclusion. As a native Japanese uh, who was born and brought up in an island nation without land borders shared by neighboring countries, you know, to me, crossing border is always one of the most exciting things to do. And I did it every day while I was doing research. So uh, in this book, uh, I try to avoid uh, writing. I, I, I thought this way when I uh, first went to my research site. I try not to avoid writing about things of which local people are not aware or things uh, far remote, removed from their life, life world, I would say. The study is so, uh, micro, very much micro-oriented in terms of its uh, geography compared to uh, numerous studies where researchers often hop around uh, geographical, geohistorical areas to find and narrate, narrate facts related to the topics. So unlike uh, subject-oriented historians, for example, uh, who are less concerned with their relationship, relationships between places on which events take place, uh, anthropologists, as an anthropologist, I tend to stick to a social field where entanglements of social relations seems to be tangible and observable through fieldwork. 
So uh, I'm not pursuing a kind of functional hall, but a spatial unit is fundamentally uh, necessary for my thick description in time and space for this book. So uh, instead of hopping around the sea of archival documents, either arbitrarily divided by administrators or grouped together by file makers, my study uh, cherishes the kind of primordial feeling of the historical oneness of a micro area, much as anthropologists in the heyday of functionalism in the 1920s enjoyed their closed social field of analysis. But what is interesting is the village I, uh, where I did my ethnographic study is very much transnational. It is not closed space. By looking at a village at the edge of the state territory, I deal with a social space whose frame of reference goes beyond the conventional analytical limits of a community, a nation state, or even an empire. So my ethnographic project is also micro-history oriented in a sense. I treat archival documents as field notes and the field research as the study of the most recent layers of spatially bounded local history. So I was on the last page of the, you know, updated history of this borderland as an anthropologist. So during two years of field research in borderland of West Borneo, I gained practical knowledge of and a feeling about the places where I uh, did my research. Uh, communities and the people recorded in, in historical documents, um, they uh, my, my understanding was of colonial officers and the uh, memories of uh, Oila villages. They are all part of my ethnographic uh, project. So, in a sense, all anthropological monographs dealing with ethnographic present are destined to be historical documentation as time goes by. So, um, in this sense, there should be no categorical as well as ontological difference between anthropology and history. And this, this book, this study, recognizes no practical distinction between the two. So uh, my book is divided into two parts. And the first part is a very historical um, description of uh, macro-dynamics of the borderland. But um, in the part two, is uh, very much uh, micro-oriented uh, ethnography. And uh, I try to combine uh, these part one and part two uh, by having uh, two kinds of uh, extension. Uh, the, with the extension of the temporal frame up to the present and the focus down to a critical point of state territoria territoriality, uh, my ethnography part in part two links the everyday life world of borderland uh, residents to the larger histories told in the previous chapters in the part one. So uh, in my book, part one and the part two does um, strategically form a set of uh, nested structures that provide viewpoints on various scales. The ethnography of part two is more concerned with the, the part of the nation in a uh, hyphenated nation-state, in contrast to part two, where the main focus is on the state apparatus for territorialization and the structural determin determinants affecting the nature of the national space. The chapter two, the chapters in part two are intended to approach, how can I say, agency of the people on the ground. The two kinds of ethnographic extension uh, I prepared uh, for this book is um, spatial as well as uh, temporal. The first extension is uh, spatial, tightening the ethnographic lens from an uh, administrative yes, district yes. to a village. Part two presents a micro, very microscopic dynamics of the borderland. A regional st study of the Lund district and the village history at the margin of the state complement each other, forming a nested structure of the description of our explanation. 
So uh, the second extension I like to talk about is the temporal, uh, about historical extension of my writing, carefully piling up the local uh, microhistory of the Telok Mulano, where I did my research on the colonial history. The borderland history extends itself up to the year of 2006. So uh, the, my historical documentation uh, is uh, really related, connected to uh, colonial and the post-colonial uh, situation in my borderland. So uh, as an anthropologist, I did something uh, which not many anthropologists have tried. Um, I'm an anthropologist, ethnographer, but I did dig up almost uh, 170 years of the borderland by taking a look at the archival documentation every day, every day, every day, from 8.30 uh, a.m. to 4 uh, p.m. every day at the archival section of the Sarak Museum. And uh, what is very interesting is uh, in the process of my digging up uh, local history, uh, something uh, very unexpected uh, kind of thing, uh, byproduct, I received, the, which is the, I encountered uh, with uh, the local um, merchants, the, the, for example, uh, the Hajitaha, Nakoda Hitam, and uh, all the other Malay traders recorded in the Sarag Gazette, and the vivid memories of the villagers I talked to. So uh, whenever I talk to my villagers in my uh, field site, you know, sometimes the, the people mention the specific names of their grandfather and, and all the relatives. And uh, whenever, uh, you know, uh, we hit the name. I when we went back to the field notes we accumulated through the archival study at the museum. So, uh, which is very very interesting experience. Uh, whenever you know, we have become a very strange ethnographers before going to the village. Because even before going to the village, I we noted with my wife. Uh, we make a very long list list of the Malay merchants actively engaged in the activities in the borderland. And then uh, when we visited the village, the villagers actually mentioned these names so that uh, we kind of succeeded in connecting the history from below and the history from above. So uh, this kind of ethnographic um, kind of connectedness is a kind of one of the characteristics of my uh, research on the borderland. Um, that sounds uh, great. Uh, can we move on to the next point of uh, the interview, which is basically about you telling us how you trace the transition of the border area from being a Dutch-British border zone to that of a rigidly demarcated Indonesia-Malaysia border and its impact on the local economy. Um, could you please elaborate how, in your opinion, the local inhabitants managed to negotiate the transition from living around one kind of border zone to another. I see. Uh, this is the main theme of my book, and uh, this is a really a big question to me, so uh, let me try. Um, let's see. Uh, for your question, I, I, I would like to introduce my discussion on the relationship between transnationalism and the nation state as a territorial, territorial entity. Um, in my book, the examination of social dynamics at the state margin raises questions about whether it is possible to treat the national and the transnational as polar opposites. And I argued that the emergence of national territoriality and the inflows, of, inflows and outflows of people and commodities across the very porous border are mutually constitutive in nature. So uh, borderland history shows a kind of resonance between the two. Uh, that is the basis for the construction and the evolution of national space. In other words, uh, I would say uh, the spatiality of the state, 
the spatiality of the state is molded by the influx of people and goods, and that generates policies and uh, practices that responded to these flows. So there is a kind of uh, relationship of uh, cats and dogs, uh, you know, between state and society. So the the appearance and the maintenance of national space entails a very dialectic uh, relationship between border society and the state. And uh, understanding the relationship between them requires locating both outside the realm of the conventional models of state-society juxtaposition, let's say, state versus uh, society. Or uh, there is a discussion about the you know, state is very much embedded embedded in uh, the the society the, this kind of social social inclusion of state you know these uh, discussions uh, were not or well, I couldn't apply to the border situation which I studied in my book so uh, uh, the historical and ethnographic study of the borderland of Western Borneo suggests. I'd say that the nation-state and the transnationalism are not mutually exclusive. The functionality of the state has been strengthened by the development of transnationalism and vice versa. So, I, as national boundaries become more rigid, the differences between nation-state increase, and these imbalances stimulate border uh, transborder flows. Without the Social economic, socioeconomic difference between Malaysia and Indonesia, for example, uh, the national space and its boundary would mean little to the borderland residents. Recent decades of socioeconomic development along the border in West, Western Borneo uh, have strength, strengthened the state's involvement in transnational projects through policies that have uh, aimed at utilizing border niches for national development, because uh, in Borneo, a border area is the last frontier with rich natural resources, so that the national states on both sides, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia, decided to utilize the border area as the last uh, resource frontier. So uh, transnational flows of labor and the natural resources were formally tolerated because they had no negative consequences for uh, you know, national interests elsewhere, but the borderland uh, of the area is now a location where state-driven development is increasingly uh, implemented for the, the state. And the state's control of the national boundary, both in practice and as image, is gradually taming the borderland. This is a situation uh, uh, now. So uh, the physically porous border in Western Borneo has become a social field characterized by uh, disparities between a set of policies exploited by people on both sides of the border through intentional transgression of the boundary. Residents of the border zone both deny and acknowledge national space. The, the realization of territory, territoriality occurs when its denial leads to the state to implement policies calling for enclosure of so, uh, such transgressions. So this kind of dialectical, dialectical process between state policing, policing and uh, adaptive transnationalism of local society uh, contributes to the genesis of the national space. And state and the society exercise uh, mul multiple uh, function. Um, I, I, I mean, uh, clarifying this uh, process offers a way to understand how two seemingly contradictory social movements, the construction of national space, and the simultaneous deconstruction of the state boundary through parochial transnationalism operate. You know, these two uh, things operate as general future of the borderland. This is my finding uh, in the borderland of the Western Borneo. Um, so, what were some of the more memorable experiences you had while carrying out the fieldwork? Uh, uh, I have lots of things to say. Uh, the village uh, 
where my wife and I lived was uh, very much you know, a far away place, eight hours on foot from the nearest town where there were shops and the bus services to the capital city. So uh, we have to walk uh, when the tide is low, eight hours on foot when the tide is low. So uh, people usually travel by boat, depending on the size of the boat and the load and the number of people. It took two, two to four hours uh, to reach my village. Uh, during the northeastern monsoon season, which is called locally Landas season, roughly from October to March, the seaborne trip was often difficult and dangerous. So the, the villages was a village was rather isolated, or very isolated during the monsoon season. Life there, life was basic. People produced and fished. Uh, they brought minimal supply like sugar, flour, uh, coffee, soap and clothing from shops in town and from Indonesian uh, peddlers coming from across the border. They grew vegetables. Many were still engaged in Sweden uh, cultivation of a hill paddy, hill rice at the time and uh, produced rice for their family consumption. One villager had a fishing boat and uh, many joined as crews or helpers. We lived with a widow whose husband was shot and killed by communists during a confrontation era uh, with uh, Indonesia. And uh, we cooked and uh, ate with her and her children, followed her uh, to her Sweden, collect Sweden field, collected her coconuts, carried and planted her pineapples. We also had a cottage, uh, vill uh, cottage villagers called Opis, uh, which is uh, called we call office, but uh, people call office, to write notes in the evening and uh, kept notes and records. We gathered wild plants and grew vegetables at our kitchen garden, searched small fish during low tide to the beach, participated in the village ritual, weddings and the funerals, for example. So it was a beautiful, a beautiful village. Coastal line was decorated with a tall, old coconut trees. Sunny days were bright and nights were dark. There was electricity from 7 to 11 uh, p.m. at night. During the Landas season, Landas monsoon season, however, uh, there often was no fuel, so uh, no electricity at all. But there we learned how bright the full moon was, how people can uh, could walk at night without a torchlight on such a uh, fortunate bright nights and fireflies often seen outside and inside our house. So uh, I still remember uh, flickering lights, decorated trees and our ceilings. It was one of the scenic area, part of a national park. There are sea turtles and fish. I remember one day I was on the boat and a stingray jumped out of the water as it was uh, curious to see what's going on the boat, you know, the, that stingray jumped again. And the second time around, the, sting, the stingray's eyes met mine. So I thought, and I still remember the eye contact with the stingray. This is one of the fascinating moments in my life. And uh, there was no road to the village from town. So there was no cars. Children played without worrying about car accidents. Adults warned us uh, then when they played too close to underneath coconut trees, so they will not be hurt by uh, falling coconut fruits. After coming back to Japan, I experienced a great Kobe earthquake where my family was affected, and I witnessed the most recent disaster of earthquake and the tsunami in northern Japan. When I uh, think of our relationship with nature, our material wealth and the strain we give to the environment, my thinking always goes to back to my villages, village in the borderland. The village is very, very much isolated. Uh, people call it out-of-the-place village. Even basic things like electricity and the piped water 
not to mention you know, fancy shops and gorgeous restaurants are not there. But people know what is enough in life. It has become my point of reference in life, so to speak. And uh, I think it will be so in my post-March 11 life. I'm sure those were really interesting and no experiences which you can cherish for a lifetime. Um, could you tell us something about your future research plans? Um, I, I did something. Uh, I, I started something very different from my borderland study. Uh, I have just started mm -hmm. a new project uh, entitled Southeast Asian Planted Forest, a multidisciplinary study. And uh, we have carried out uh, a research project under a grant in aid for scientific research uh, from the Japan Society for Promotion of Science, Ministry of Education, uh, Culture, uh, Sports, uh, the Japanese government. Now, um, I, I still do research in, in Sarak where, uh, let's see, we can see the highest concentration of a biomass in jungle frontier. So the tropics have the highest potentiality to reproduce biomass due to greater solar radiation and active heat and water cycle. So the region has also been the most fertile ground for bioresource commodification in human history. With the changing status of biomass as forest and agricultural products, biomaterials and now financial instruments. The tropical zone in Southeast Asia has undergone fast-paced uh, fast transformations through uh, extensive environment uh, depend, extensive usage of uh, biomass for, uh, let's say, intensive agro-industrial production, including large-scale plantations of oil palm and acacia mangium. So uh, my research site is now being converted into a vast plantation field. So uh, we study about the shift or change of the biomass in the advent of a uh, you know, planted forest created for uh, agro-industries and uh, renewable energy uh, plan for you know, the nation state. So. Uh, for us, for our study, high biomass societies offer very important locales to invest, investigate the transformation of the regional landscapes in Borneo for food production, development of a renew, renewable sources of energy and the biomaterials, and the reduction of carbon, carbon emission. So formulas for a better articulation among human community, local fauna and uh, flora, and uh, geospheric and atmospheric circulations and global poli political economy are really needed. So in order to tackle these you know, gigantic uh, dynamics, uh, we I organized a team comprised of more than 20 some natural scientists and the social, social scientists. And uh, in order to articulate the study of the local people, cultures, and landscapes. Uh, we, I resort to uh, many kinds of uh, uh, discipline specialists, namely anthropologists, geographers, historians, and political economists, environmental economists, uh, plant and animal ecologists, and hydrologists, social uh, soil scientists, and area informatics, and forest ecologists, you just name it. Uh, we have a very interesting multidisciplinary uh, research team working on a planted forest in Sarawak. So uh, I hope uh, we can comprehend the nature of such you know, connections between nature and uh, social forces and, and uh, the strength of our project lies in the very strategic combination of a field sciences, field sciences. So, uh, not in a sense, uh, I'm pursuing uh, all type of uh, very holistic anthropology, 
by resorting to the new composition of area studies on Southeast Asia. Thank you. Um, thank you, Noboru. That was lovely, and I am sure our listeners will find it as fascinating as I did. Um, well, all the best uh, with your future research, and um, that's it. And we just hope you have a productive time ahead. So, Fox, an amazing insight into one of the world's lesser-regarded border regions. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye. Thank you.